Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Good evening and thanks for joining us. Why don't we start with a look at the new cases confirmed here in Wisconsin. There are 111 confirmed cases in the Wisconsin. Confirmed cases stands tonight at 157. 295 confirmed there cases. There are now 384 confirmed cases in the state. Every day at 2 p.m., Wisconsin updates the number of positive and negative COVID-19 tests. Those numbers become the headlines. But they're not telling the full story. From the Fox 6 studios, this is a special edition of Open Record. I'm Brian Polson, and I'm here with my colleague, Amanda St. Hilaire. Good morning, Amanda. Good morning, Brian. We're bringing you new episodes of Open Record each day, Monday through Friday, to make it easier to sort through the bombardment of coronavirus news. And at the time of this recording, Wisconsin has seen at least four deaths from COVID-19, and the number of confirmed COVID-19 cases just keeps rising. More than 400 positive tests so far, more than 6,000 of them negative. But in talking to people who've gone through testing, Amanda realized something was missing. My mind was, oh my gosh, I just exposed how many people traveling, first of all, because we stopped at gas stations, we stopped at restaurants. And then my thought was, oh my gosh, I might die because I'm in the high risk category because of my asthma. That's 19-year-old Annika Taylor. She's a freshman at Iowa State, and just hours after arriving home in Milwaukee, she got an email saying she had been exposed to COVID-19. Then the symptoms started. Fever, cough, shortness of breath. Getting tested was not easy. Annika no longer has a primary care doctor around here. It took a few days of making calls, but she was finally able to get a test at a local hospital. Then it's um, a swab about this big that gets shoved up your nose for about a minute and they swirl it around and they put it back in the test tube and then they told me two to three days to wait and now it's a five to seven to seven to ten day wait. The more patients we talked to, the more that story, that similar situation came up. Here's Katie Holm who lives in Burlington. If I do have it, this is not fun. Uh, it hurts. My, my chest really really hurt more so than I've ever had with pneumonia. I know that it can be fatal to the elderly and I'm concerned because my parents are are over the age of 60. Even after calling a doctor and doing a video chat, Katie had to fight to get a test. And just like Annika, getting the test was one thing, getting the results was another. They originally told me it could take up to 48 hours, but now they're saying it could be up to a week. I know my friends, like, if they had to stay home seven to ten days waiting for a test result, they wouldn't. We originally talked to Annika and Katie on Wednesday and Thursday last week. At that point, they had been waiting three days for test results. Annika got her results on Friday, and they came back negative, fortunately. As of this morning, Katie was still waiting, still not feeling well. It's been a week. So you think they got the test and that's been a big challenge for a lot of people just to get it. Why does it matter that they're waiting so long to get the results? 
Well, Annika brought up one of those points when she said she knows if her friends had to stay home waiting for a test result, they wouldn't. So the longer someone has to wait to get those results back, you do risk someone not taking it seriously and going out and potentially exposing other people. That's one of the issues. But the other issue is in our understanding of the problem. So we get these test numbers every day. They become the headlines. And understandably so, these numbers are what people are looking to as a sign of how fast the virus is spreading, where it's spreading to. But the numbers aren't actually reflecting that. Because if people are waiting four days, five days, a week more to get their test results, then the numbers we're seeing today are actually a reflection of last week or a few days ago. They're not telling us what's happening right now. I did speak to one patient who was in Egypt at the time when this really started to a balloon and she was tested in Egypt. They were doing random testing. They got the results back within an hour. It's a very different situation than what's been happening here in the United States. I know that when you look at this on a national scale, uh, you know, whether or not everyone's getting these test results in or there's a lag, you should still see trends in which way it's going. But what I wonder is if some states or even some localities are doing a more effective job at testing and a more effective job at getting results back quickly. Can that be misleading in terms of trying to track where is this thing really spreading? Is it could, could it be where the numbers are increasing the fastest is just an area that's doing the most effective job of testing? That's such a great point, Brian, because my pet peeve, especially over the weekend, has been seeing in in media reports people saying things like New York is one of the hardest hit states. We don't know that. New York has been aggressive with testing. So when we're talking about the hardest hit areas, are they the hardest hit or are they the ones where the virus has been detected the most? Because these numbers don't tell us how many cases of COVID-19 there are or where these cases have spread. It tells us how many cases and where those cases have been detected those are very different things, and it makes it hard to figure out where to send resources. That's why these numbers are so important. The analogy I think of is if you, for instance, were concerned that crime was or crime rates were going up, let's say in the city of Milwaukee, you could lay off every police officer in the city or lay off all but five, and the crime arrest numbers would go way, way down, but crime would probably go up. So it's really a matter of, of what's being caught, not necessarily what's occurring. Are, are there any suggestions or hints that this might improve as time goes on? I know we're hearing at times from the national level and from the White House that there's plenty of test kits out there, that there are uh, things on the horizon that seem promising, but how far away are we from really getting caught up? And that's a great question. So the White House has, over the last several days, acknowledged that there is a backlog in testing and has described efforts to make sure that we can get more test kits out to different areas. And the FDA just approved a rapid test so that people can get their results back not in 24 to 48 hours, as has been the standard, or so we're told here in Wisconsin, even though we know people are waiting far longer than that. Um, so there are efforts to 
improve things, but it's hard to tell how much they will actually improve. And we need to remember that there are a lot of people who are exhibiting symptoms, who know they've been exposed in some way, and they still can't get tested. In Wisconsin, they've limited testing to essentially healthcare workers and the sickest of the sick patients. And that's a result of a test shortage. It's not just happening here. It's happening all over the country. So we have so many people who want to get tested, who have met the previous criteria for getting tested, and now they still can't get tested. So right after Annika and Katie got tested, that's when these new testing standards, the more strict testing standards came into place. And under those standards, Annika and Katie would never be tested. And, and it, that's developing on a day-to-day basis as to who are, are, the, are the, the targets for these tests. I was just reading literally about an hour ago, Lacrosse Tribune released a story that Gunderson Health System there has in fact developed a test. They say they've developed a test and a way of, of uh, uh, testing in-house where they can turn these around much more quickly, getting results within say six to eight hours, but they're still restricting who can get these tests to what the guidelines are coming down from the CDC. So it's not as though just anyone who's exhibiting these symptoms can go in and get them, but that still raises for me that original question of if in the lacrosse area, they can suddenly turn these tests around more quickly Will it appear there's been some sort of a spike in lacrosse or in that region that is really just a representation of the fact that the rest of the state is lagging in its testing? Exactly. And that's where we as journalists need to be really careful in the words that we use. So I know it sounds like we're being nitpicky here when we're saying we shouldn't say cases have spread to this county or cases have spiked in this county and we should limit it to saying cases have been detected. But it's not being nitpicky because what we are conveying and the impression we are giving, it sends a message to people about how seriously to take this, about what's going on. It's context. So when we don't have the context, it can look like there's a spike in one particular county. The reality is we need to assume this virus is everywhere. It's a matter of have we detected it yet? And right now in the United States, our methods for detection are not nearly as advanced. It's why we need to be careful about comparing trends and comparing numbers to other countries who have been testing far more aggressively than we have. I actually have a a friend, a former colleague, who was an investigative producer in Austin for Fox Television years ago. He is now a reporter for 12 News, a cable station in New York uh, City. And he himself came down with all of these symptoms and uh, went into the doctor and was tested initially for the flu. He tested negative for the flu. Um, All signs point to him having COVID-19, but still, after 24 hours of symptoms, he had to press his doctor to say, I need this test. He, He eventually got it. That was last Wednesday. He's still waiting for results. And the reason I point this out is I've been following his, he's really been open about what he's going through on Facebook. And as he's sharing the symptoms, as he's sharing how this thing hit, how quickly he recovered, he says within about, you know, 24 to 48 hours, he was feeling much, much better. In fact, he did a 45-minute workout yesterday. He still doesn't know if he has COVID-19. And the reason I think that's important is the average person who may not push so hard to get this kind of a test or to get these kind of results, that person may think, I feel better. It's time to go back out in the community. It's time to go to work. It's time to uh, go to the grocery store. 
he still doesn't know if he has this. And if he does, the CDC has said you are contagious for, I believe it's up to two weeks after symptoms stop. So he could very well be, if he weren't paying attention to this closely, feeling a lot better and then go out and put other people at risk. Exactly. And that's part of the reason that testing matters, right? Because it tells someone, hey, this is concretely the next step, the next three steps that I need to take. When people don't know that, if they're not being overly cautious, that puts the rest of us at risk. So I should say that the Wisconsin Department of Health Services says the state lab has still has a 24 to 48 hour turnaround for those high priority specimens, those sickest of the sick people they're testing the healthcare workers, but they're still trying to figure out other testing options for those lower priority tests. There are private labs that are involved in this, and that's what makes some of these numbers such big question marks. Because at this point in Wisconsin, we still don't know the number of pending cases at any given point. We still get very uh, sporadic details when it comes to the ages of people who have tested positive. That tells us how seriously to take it. So when you have someone who's relatively young, sometimes there's this misconception that, well, I don't have it. It's not a young people's disease. That's false. Young people have tested positive for this. And like you mentioned, Brian, we don't know exactly how long it takes for someone to spread this or even when they could be spreading this. So the big news over the weekend was that Rand Paul uh, in U.S. Congress was tested and tested positive for COVID-19. He's asymptomatic. Now, somehow he was able to get a test, probably because of his leadership position in the federal government. But the issue here is that he, someone like him, not knowing what they have, can be walking around and spreading it. And the way our testing works, we don't have a good idea of what this virus is really doing at any given point. I want to go back to something at the very beginning of this podcast. We talked about the daily numbers and the latest showed more than 400 positive tests in Wisconsin, more than 6,000 negative. So even under these restrictive testing uh, protocols in terms of who's going to get the tests, the vast majority of people who get these tests are still coming up negative. So does that play into this a little bit as well? Because as you said, we don't know how many people we're waiting on results for. We don't know how many people haven't even been able to get the tests, but we do know that the vast majority of those who get through this process and still and do get a test still turn up negative. Um, what does that say about who's being tested and, and just how reliable it is to say, well, I've got a cough and I've got a fever. I must have COVID-19. Well, keep in mind, Brian, those more strict testing requirements only came down last week. So if people are still waiting four days, five days, seven days for testing, that means we're just now getting in some of those numbers that started to roll in under those most strict testing requirements. So Katie still doesn't have her test results in, and she was tested before those uh, regulations, those rules about who gets tested tightened up. So we still have to take all of that with a grain of salt. I mean, if we're still talking about 400 out of 6,000 testing positive, that's not nothing. As far as when we look at uh, the rates that uh, we detect disease, that's still not an insignificant number. 
But at this point, we don't know where the situation stands now. What we're getting now is really a reflection, it could be, of almost a week ago. It seems like a, a, a difficult balance, though, because the more restrictive you get on testing, you look at, at uh, Rand Paul, if he was asymptomatic yet positive, you have people who have mild symptoms that match this who aren't going to be tested. Will we know if they were positive? So the more restrictive you get, the more cases you might miss, but the looser you get, there aren't enough tests to do when you get a lot of these negative results. And that's the struggle that our local leaders, our state leaders, and our federal leaders are trying to figure out right now. So we'll see over the next few weeks if testing improves. But by the time all said and done, I doubt that we will be able to definitively say how many people in this country had the virus and exactly where the virus spread. And that thought right there, I think, is a frightening one for a lot of people. It sure is. And, you know, that's why we dig into these. Because, again, it sounds nitpicky. It sounds hyper-focused on the numbers. Um, But we need context for those numbers in order to see what the virus is doing. And that's something that directly affects you. I want to wrap this up with this question to you. I pose it to you because you've been very close to this. You've been monitoring it. You've been uh, on top of of the reporting of these numbers. Even with all of these concerns about the delays in, in the results, in the question of who gets tested and who doesn't, is there still value in knowing how many positive tests, how many negative tests? Is there still value in these results? I mean, it, it's not the perfect data, but it's still data. Look, some data is better than no data, but data in context is best. So in terms of how we report things, I think we need to be careful. We still need to give people the numbers. This is what people want to know. And as those numbers climb, people are taking it more seriously. But I think we need to have the context of either additional data or if we don't have that additional data, tell people what we don't know. So here's what we do know. There's value in it as long as we know what we can or cannot compare it to. All right. Well, thanks, Amanda. Now, we're going to continue bringing you more frequent episodes of Open Record as we cover the COVID-19 pandemic. If there's a topic you want us to discuss or dig into further, an issue you think we should investigate, please send us an email at theinvestigators at fox6now.com. That's T-H-E investigators altogether at fox6now.com. We want to thank the people who made this podcast possible. Producer Pete, Dave Machuda, Suzanne Barthel, and Sarah Smith. And please subscribe to Open Record if you haven't already. You can find it wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. I'm Brian Polson. We'll be back tomorrow. Look around. You can find cars like these on AutoTrader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on AutoTrader. Just you wait. Auto Trader.